the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew from the 17th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Our Gospel this morning is from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, and can be found on page 1524 of your pew Bible. Matthew records, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up high on a mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, and they were terrified. But Jesus came, and he touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except for Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the name of Jesus. The Transfiguration is an event in the life of Christ when he momentarily allowed three of his disciples to experience a brief glimpse of heaven. These disciples received just a very small dose of Jesus as the eternal light of the new Jerusalem. They had the opportunity to see Jesus speak with two of the ancient heroes of the Old Testament. And both of them who have already been in eternity, Moses and Elijah, with Jesus in, for many, many centuries. Jesus took three of his disciples to witness the transfiguration. And this was in accord to the laws that were given to Moses that required two or three witnesses to establish facts in a court of law. Two or three witnesses. And what a group of fishermen these witnesses were. A motley group. 
Here we see and read about the Peter, that same Peter that we all know that insisted that Jesus should not die on the cross. And this is the same Peter that we all know and love who swore that he would stay with Jesus until death. And then he denied him three times. And there's James and John, the two brothers who were eager to call fire down on a Samaritan village. And these two showed incredible arrogance and ignorance when they asked Jesus to make them two of the most powerful men in his future kingdom. If you and I were choosing candidates for apostleship, these guys are not likely to have ever made the interview list. And despite of what we do, these three fallible men were called to witness when even the other nine disciples were left out of the picture. And this is not the first time that Jesus called on these three to witness something very, very special. You'll remember that they were the only apostles to enter the house of Jairus. Do you remember him? Jairus. He's the one that Jesus went into his home and he raised his daughter from the dead. They were also the three who went deeper into Gethsemane with Jesus. We know how these three witnesses responded, and that is through the words of Peter. You may recall that Peter was the one who had a tendency to work off nervous energy by opening his big mouth and babbling. Peter is once again true to his character. And he began talking about making tents for Jesus and for Moses and for Elijah. And Peter was of the opinion that this mountaintop experience was the ultimate goal of Christ's mission here on earth. And, G and, 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 and Peter wanted to build shelters for the, for the three that appeared before him. It's possible that he had the idea that eventually Israel, maybe even the world, would come to this mountaintop and worship the Lord. And Peter just didn't understand that there was an even greater mountaintop experience yet to be experienced in the future. And we hear, we read, that God the Father interrupted Peter and he said this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And it is as if God the Father said, hey, Peter, you can't learn a whole lot 
with all that noise coming out of your big mouth. And if you want to learn, if you really want to learn, here is my beloved son. So close your mouth and listen to him. The father identified Jesus as a son, the eternal word in the flesh. And he said, pay attention. In a few verses before today's gospel, in Matthew 16, 21, we read that Jesus had begun to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. The disciples heard these words, but they did not believe it. They were not listening to God's Son. In fact, in Matthew 16, 22, that's when Peter, he took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then we all know it was then, Matthew 16, 23, that Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And now they are on the mountaintop in the presence of God the Father. And God the Father says again, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What did he say? Listen to him. It's as if God was telling these three, when my beloved son tells you that he is going to save you by suffering, dying, and raising from the dead, pay attention. It's pretty easy for us to get excited about these sort of mountaintop experiences. We, we get pretty excited about the God who speaks from the burning bush or, or thunders from Sinai. And man, we like it. We like it that Jesus went around healing the sick and casting out demons. And we really like it when he puts those bullies, the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees, right in their spot. Puts them in their place. And we like the Jesus who lights up the mountaintop in today's gospel. And we all like the Jesus whose father thunders from the cloud and he tells us that Jesus is his son. We like a God that is large and in charge. We like that kind of power and that majesty. We like an awesome God who has thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. We like our sovereign God. Now, the problem comes with this. The problem is, is when God says he's going to defeat sin, death, and the power of the devil by becoming the very opposite of large and in charge. When he tells us that he is going to allow mere mortal men to arrest him, to beat him up, we have a problem when he tells us that mere mortal men will nail him to some pieces of wood 
and let him hang there until he is dead. And we don't like it when he tells us that this is how he will save us from our enemies. We want to join Peter, and we want to scold Jesus for crazy talk. We would much rather stay on top of the mountain and never return to real life. We would like to join Peter, and we'd like to build three tents. Three tents, but only until we could pull together a capital campaign and raise the funds for three temples. One for Moses, the great lawgiver. One for Elijah, the great prophet. And the greatest one for Jesus. That's the kind of religion that makes, a, makes sense to the human mind. You see, the sinful human mind wants nothing to do with the true God, our current culture expects us uh, all to build our own little G-God. We can get our God with our favorite options. We can look deep into our hearts and come up with a God that makes us the most comfortable. How wonderful it is to bask in the glory of the God of our own making. When we come into the presence of the little G God of our own making, it will be all warm fuzziness and happiness. And why not? We can custom design our God to suit our own wants. Then there is the true God, the big G God, the one that we don't make up. The true God is a God of love, not that ooey, gooey, sappy kind of love, that emotional stuff that passes for love in our modern culture. The love of God, the true God, is solid. It's committed. It's eternal. And it's perfect in every way. And there are the characteristics of God that we tend to forget. That is that God is also just and righteous and holy. And it is easy to forget the words that God said to Moses in Exodus 33:20. But he said to Moses, "You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live." And it is easy to forget that when God the Father spoke from the cloud, the disciples, they fell on their faces in fear. And it is easy to forget that in order to stand before God without fear, we must be just as perfect as he is, just as holy as he is. We must be blameless, innocent, and sinless. In fact, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. We must be perfect, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. So in order to stand before God in his glory, we too must be glorious. It's easy to think that we can be glorious when we stand before the false God of our own making. But when the true God reveals his law to us, 
we see that we are anything but glorious. Instead of being sinless, we are sin-filled. Instead of being innocent, we are guilty. Instead of being holy, we are profane. Our only response to God's holy, almighty glory is to collapse in terror, just as the disciples did. And when the disciples collapsed in terror, what did Jesus do? Do you remember? When they had fallen down in terror, Jesus came and he touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And Jesus led them down from the mountain of terror. And eventually Jesus would go to another mountain, Golgotha, the place of the skull. And on that mountain, Jesus will express the innermost being of God in sweat and in blood and in pain and suffering and ultimately in death and burial. And it is through that suffering and death on the cross that Jesus earned our, yours and mine, our justification. And it is through that suffering and death on the cross that Jesus took away our sin. And he replaced it with his righteousness. It is Jesus working through the cross who offers us forgiveness who offers us life and salvation. And it is Jesus who takes away the burden of our sin and makes it possible for us to stand in the presence of God. It is the glory of Christ on the cross that gives the glory of eternal life to us. And it is through the cross that Jesus became the death of death and the life of life. As the life of life, he rose from the dead. And it was not until after the resurrection that the disciples finally understood the true mission of the Messiah. And when Peter, James, and John could properly tell their experience on the mountain, when Jesus showed them a bit of heaven, then it was that they could proclaim that they had seen the divine glory of Christ. But Jesus hid that glory in his human flesh. By means of that human flesh, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. They could point to the glory of his transfiguration that transfiguration that terrified them, and then they could point to the even greater glory of his death on the cross. It is in this way that they could proclaim the magnitude of his salvation. God the Father, God the Father proclaimed Jesus as his Son, and he commanded us to listen to him. And as we hear the proclamation of Jesus' word, the Holy Spirit produces and sustains the true faith in us. 
The faith that receives Christ's great salvation. Faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And that great salvation will carry us through not only the mountaintop experiences, but also through the valleys in between until our last hour comes and our Father in heaven gives us a blessed end and he carries us from this valley of sorrows to himself in heaven. And what a glorious day that will be. In the name of Jesus, amen.